Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE, those of you who aren't always at the LSE, for this evening's Behavioral Research Lab public discussion. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, and it's a great honor for me to welcome Professor Richard Thaler to the LSE for a second time. As I'm sure everyone in the audience is aware, Professor Taylor is among the world's leading behavioral economists and perhaps the most important pioneer of the field. Thanks in no small part to his work, behavioral economics is now increasingly recognized not only as an academic field, but as a key part of public policymaking. <coughs> as an academic field, it is not only a part of a wider discipline of economics, but part of a transdisciplinary behavioral science. In public policy, we all know now what is signaled by the notion of governments nudging their citizens into making better decisions. When I was younger and a student at Columbia University, I learned the word nudge, which had a sort of local Dutch. New York meaning. <laughs> I learned the word nudge, which had a local New York meaning yes. from Yiddish, which has been transformed into nudge and into UK English as well, as it has entered into the lexicon of policymakers here, partly through your work together with LSE leaders like Julian Legrand. Here at LSE, we've seen our own community of behavioral scientists grow, and over the past five years, we've developed the LSE Behavioral Research Lab, a purpose-built facility designed for the use of researchers examining behavior in organizations, as well as launching the world's first executive masters in behavioral science. Colleagues throughout the LSE in a range of departments from social psychology, now being renamed psychology and behavioral science, to management, Stickard, economics, the Marshall Institute, and the International Growth Center are all also active. Now, not that Richard needs much of an introduction. It's worth saying that he's devoted a 40-year career to the study of how people make decisions with the key finding that human beings are more akin to Homer Simpson than to the rational actors assumed in traditional economic thinking. He started his career in the 1970s as a student at the University of Rochester, having some crucial connections made at Stanford University that he recounts in his new book, and moving to the Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University for two decades, and then to the University of Chicago. I think it's fair to say that throughout this, Richard found himself engaged in spirited battles with the bastions of traditional economic thinking. And lest you are sure that we are always in the vanguard, the London School of Economics was not the fastest of all leading economics departments to embrace behavioral economics, though we like to think we are now fully on board. Today, Richard is the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics and the Director of the Center at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, which is the world's oldest academic center devoted to decision research. Richard's also the co-director of the Behavioral Economics Project at the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research, a position he shares with Professor Robert Schiller. On top of all of these activities, He's a global best-selling author, including famously of Nudge. Thank you. 
improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness, with Kath Sunstein. This evening, I will be interviewing Richard for 45 minutes about his book, Misbehaving. I'm going to try to interview as unobtrusively as possible, because you're all interested in him, not me, but I will prod the conversation along a bit. Misbehaving is a term that Richard defines as not doing something wrong, but doing something inconsistent with economic theory. Now, I'd like to report that this makes it a universal human attribute. I'm not a behavioral economist, but I want to speculate on a possible finding. I've observed over the last four years of watching events like this at the LSE that there are people who will devote an evening to coming to hear a distinguished author at a book launch, but who will not choose to spend an evening reading his work or can't find the willpower to make themselves do it. I mention this now because in this case, you should not only buy, but read Misbehaving. It's a really good book. If you need an additional incentive for buying it, at the end of this event, Richard will be available to sign copies of his books. Misbehaving and Nudge are both available for purchase outside. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Taylor. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. This evening's event is being streamed and recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. The format is I will talk with Richard for about three quarters of an hour and then open to questions from the floor. So, so let's start. The organization of the book uh, combines biography and anecdotes and reflections and um, a lot of key findings. The, a fair amount of it is centered on decision-making, core field of your work throughout. Not quite all of it. You, you recognize a debt to Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, but let me take up sort of how this works and get you to comment a little bit more. One of the ways it works is that you began fairly early on to notice that a bunch of seemingly irrelevant factors mattered a lot in the way in which people made decisions. Um, that people did things that were hard to explain in economic terms, like remembering their wife's birthday. And um, is this sentiment, and an older psychology would have it, how do you think about the supposedly irrelevant factors? Is there a unified theory of them, or are they just so many different observations of curious things people do? Uh, well, yeah, it would be nice to uh, have a unified theory, but it ain't going to happen. Um, if you want a unified theory of economic behavior, then neoclassical economics is it. It just leaves a lot of things out. Uh, but there, there's no unified theory of what those things are. They, there are categories. <coughs> so, as you mentioned, self-control problems mm -hmm. is a big category. Um, you know, cognitive resources. We're, we're not as smart as the smartest economist. I'm certainly not. Um, and we're nowhere near as smart as the smartest economist thinks he is. 
Yes, I have someone in mind. <laughs> um, and uh, we're a bit nicer than economists give us credit for. Um, but, you know, when Cass and I were writing Nudge, uh, which is to do this, as opposed to Nudge, who is a pest. Mm. So a Nudge is a person, and a Nudge is an action. Uh, just want you to get that straight. On Craig. the other hand, a, a, a nudge can be a governmental unit charged with taking action. No, uh, uh, I saw Owen here, right? Uh, um, the uh, what's your title now? Uh, bigwig. Um, uh, the bigwig will attest that. Well, first of all, the name of the team is the Behavioral Insight Team. Uh, not the nudge unit, much as uh, it's often referred to as, as that, but no one there would dare call it the nudge unit. Mm. And um, it wouldn't really be very popular. Uh, you don't want to be a nudge. Um, I understand that. Yeah, and we don't want to, okay. uh, we don't want to be known as nudgers. Nudgers. Well, let me go straight into that question, although I sort of interrupted you. The, um, and the, the exploring the difference between the nudge and the nudgers. Um, one line of argument would be to say that this is social engineering um, with a hint of a pejorative, or more than a hint of a pejorative connotation. Mm-hmm. You're finding ways to control people outside of their conscious choices and voluntary participation um, by steering the way they make decisions. Fair? Unfair? Well, I wouldn't say control. Uh, <coughs> you know, Cass and I coined the term libertarian paternalism or liberal paternalism, um, and we mean it. And so by our standards, a policy qualifies as a nudge if um, avoiding it is nearly costless, ideally one click. So, um, you know, I think social engineering, aside from the pejorative connotation, um, I, I, I don't mind uh, thinking about that way. Um, we need... Uh, Actually, economics needs to become more like engineering mm. and less like physics, right? We want to build bridges that won't fall into the river. So, um, and so we need to take into account things like wind. And, um, but we, well, we don't try to control people, and we don't try to tell people what to do. We try to help people get where they're going. I, I like to use GPS as an analogy. Um, if you use GPS, Google Maps, or something like that, you plug in your destination. Uh, it gives you a suggested route, uh, which you're f- free to deviate from. And um, Although the, the little voice may come on and say, please return to the designated. Yeah, yeah, although notice they do that less. Yes. 
It so, was popular, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it, when uh, Hertz used to have uh, Never Lost, um, which was a, a great innovation before we all had GPS in our phones, and it was quite annoying. Yeah. If, you, if it said turn left here and you didn't, it would say recalculating route. And, um, you know, just do it. Don't tell me about it. So um, it was a nudge. <laughs> well said. The, let me ask about another metaphor. So we, we had economics to be more like engineering. And I'm actually, engineering has been a really exciting discipline recently. For one thing, it became very empirical. And one of the features of behavioral economics has been very empirical about a lot of things. But I want to ask first how you feel about design as a field, which has become a way of, of thinking with the Stanford Design School and so forth, not just about doing design and sitting there with a sketch pad, but about doing iterations, um, designing something, seeing how people use it, doing intensive observation, doing it again. It has some similarities to behavioral games, not exactly, um, and things like that. Do you see a, a way of working there that is promising for social scientists in which we're more like engineers by putting prototypes out? Absolutely. When... Uh, when we were working on Nudge, I went back and read a book I had read maybe 20 years earlier by Don Norman called The Design of Everyday Things, which I think has the single best cover I've ever seen on a book. It's a a picture of a tea kettle uh, on which the spout and the handle are on the same side. (laughs) So, uh, just... Picture that, and then uh, try to think about how you're going to pour the water, and you'll see there's a problem there. Um, but we are our life is filled with things designed as thoughtfully as that teapot. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad to see you. You don't have what we call Norman doors in this room, which are these doors that have the handles that are called poles. Yes. So uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, our campus here, the Booth campus, the main lecture hall like this, the doors with that you leave have these poles. Now, there's a reason they're called poles. Which is they're telling they're shouting at you. Open this inward pull, and of course you have to push to leave. And I point this out uh, the first day of my class, uh, which doesn't prevent somebody from going up to the door. And so um, you know, I think I have become much more sensitized to design. And, you know, um, Apple uh, always had a great aesthetic sense and a a great sense of design in ease of use. Um, Somehow, weirdly, uh, Microsoft still hasn't got the idea that you could have an on switch instead of Control-Alt-Delete. Um, but I think why on, one, why on one all, click where three would do right? Yeah, yeah that require two hands. Yeah. So, 
I mean, that world, of course, in Britain, Johnny Ive is a sort of celebrity for his work on the adult devices, has often opened up to fields like anthropology and to um, observation in actual use of devices and things like that. Do you see much beginning of a, an integration in behavioral science generally or behavioral economics between people who are doing experiments that are pretty focused in on their findings and people who are doing um, observational work, field observation that is not an experimental design, but an attempt simply to watch what people do? Uh, I would say so, so far, no. Uh, and, and look, I think behavioral economics, uh, I sometimes joke it should be just called Kahneman and Tversky economics because uh, we've borrowed so much from them. Um, but the, the behavioral part of behavioral economics really has drawn just from psychology. Uh, the other social sciences have barely dented the field. Um, I, I think part of that is, especially Amos and Danny's work, was easily exportable. And, um, and, and, and I think an economist would have no idea how to start taking the observations of an ethnographic study and, uh, they, you know, show me the data. I have to say, I, my colleague Tim Besley, an LSE economist, just a couple of weeks ago told me he had gotten into anthropology and it was fascinating. He would see this was a new frontier. So th- this may be happening in various ways. You know, look, I think the, uh, but uh, I, other fields like sociology and political science, um, one can see uh, that happening more quickly uh, than anthropology, but I would love to see behavioral science and behavioral uh, behavioral economics borrow from all the disciplines, um, if we could. Well, it does seem to me it's potentially a very broad uh, transdisciplinary undertaking that is rooted largely in psychology. Um, A few years ago when I was president of the Social Science Research Council in the U.S., um, there was the year of behavior that had been pronounced. We're going to have the year of behavior been promoted by the American Psychological Association. And none of the other disciplines ever heard of it or anything. It was an almost all APA venture. And yet part of the meaning of behavior really was observational research. Part of the meaning of calling it behavioral science wasn't that behavior was so different from action or any of these other sort of terminological things. It was really, let's watch what people do um, and make empirical research drive um, our findings rather than formal modeling in some ways. And, and there, it seems to me, the, the range of forms of empiricism is large in all of this. Yeah, and I, look, I think, uh, you know, policy advice is basically been given to economists by default, uh, and especially psychologists have been extremely reluctant to engage mm-hmm. um, for, for reasons I, that I don't really fully understand. Uh, applied psychology is a second-class citizen within yeah. the field of psychology, 
uh, in a way that's very different from economics. So a field like labor economics, yeah. would, you know, or public finance, yeah. um, has equal status uh, or you know monetary policy, right? These are sure. these are all highly applied fields and uh, high status, um, but. Uh, you know things are changing, and uh, I all, I applaud your use of the term behavioral science. I, I, it's uh, many people wrongly describe the underlying discipline of the behavioral insight team as behavioral economics, and there's Rather actually than psychology not or behavioral. Yeah, you know, behavioral science is really much more accurate. There's not that much economics going on there. Yeah. I mean, I must say here, a lot of the uptake at the LSE has been in management, and that's true elsewhere, too, and people with some practical problems to solve who have drawn on uh, behavioral research traditions. But let me stick to it. One of, your, one of the things the book recounts, and part of your experience, has been engaging law um, as another discipline, mm-hmm. and also not unrelated to public <laughs> policy engagements and so forth. Did you... Was the... Well, tell us more. How did this come about, and why did it matter to you? Uh, just Cass Sunstein accosted me the day I arrived at the University of Chicago, and I was dragged brute force into the field. Um, so, you know, much, much of my career has been haphazard. Uh, Somebody recommended you read Kahneman and Tversky, and look right. what happened. And look what happened, right. And uh, I... I actually got an email from Cass six months before I arrived at the University of Chicago, um, excitedly saying, oh, I'm so glad you're coming. And um, so we started talking together. And um, law was an interesting field because the field of law and economics was dominated by true believers in Chicago school economics, uh, like Richard Posner. And the the way the field of uh, legal scholarship is (coughs) is a bit odd because um, most law professors uh, have no graduate training other than having gone to law school. And they did cleverly change the degree they awarded from an LLB to a JD, but it's still... Not everywhere. Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, obviously that didn't have any effect on the curriculum. Um, and the people that entered law and economics were uh, essentially bullies because they could do a little bit of math, and the rest of the law faculty couldn't do any. And, um, you know, so if uh, one law professor, you know, complained that, that this model was completely unrealistic, the law and economics scholar could just say, well, you just don't really understand. And that was the end of it. So, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Um, I will say... Just as an aside, uh, uh, since I brought up the name Richard Posner, he may be the person, maybe the only person I know, who's really changed his mind about things. Hmm. Um, Including about behavioral research. Yes. 
and about all kinds of things. Um, he's had a remarkable transformation. Um, I, I think part of it is he read Keynes. And uh, that, you know, he had learned that, because he was at the University of Chicago, that Keynes is, it, it's on the forbidden reading list at the University of Chicago. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I take a poll of my students, have you read any Keynes? And none of them have. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, Posner was in that category, and then he read it, mm-hmm. and of course had to write a book about it, uh, because both he and Cass uh, can't think without writing. writing. And Posner's a good writer, it has to be said, as was Keynes. And, and yeah. Keynes is a lot more um, enticing than the Wikipedia article about Keynes. Well, that's right. And, um, you know, a, as you know, a point I make in this book is economics was behavioral right. up until Keynes. I mean, he was sort of the last... The whole classical tradition. The whole, yeah, starting with Adam Smith, um, through Keynes, yeah. certainly through Irving Fisher, and mm-hmm. right up to Paul Samuelson. Yep. And uh, then the process of writing down equations uh, transformed the field in, in an unintended way. Mm. So it, it's not that... It's not that Samuelson set out to take the psychology out. He set out, as as you know, his PhD thesis has the uh, modest title, Foundations of Economic Analysis. And it was. So that was his thesis, was basically just redo all of economics, but properly. And uh, there's a, an old story that at his thesis defense, um, after the committee went through the, the process of asking him to leave for a moment while we, uh, and then they talked, did we pass? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, Samuelson didn't set out to be anti-behavioral. And there's nothing, you know, it took a while. There's, there's no reason why behavioral economics can't be formal, mm. but uh, but the easiest models to write down are models of rational choice. Yeah. Well, and you've made clear that you see value in some of the more formal work um, for certain things. It's the the arrogant extension of it to the things it can't handle. Well, I, yeah, I think the, the, the fundamental problem is that economics uses one theory for two tools. And it's a theory of optimization. And uh, that it's good to know how to optimize. It's a good normative theory, a bad descriptive theory. Exactly. And, but, you know, if you ask what is the theory of the firm, it is that Firms maximize value. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there are a bunch of equations right. that show you how to do that. Now, anyone who has ever worked in a firm knows that, or any organization, that optimization is, well, maybe your organization. Absolutely. The LSE is optimal. People have been telling me that since I got here. It's already optimal. Don't change anything. Right, right. So uh, you've just 
muck things up. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, so yeah, no organization is anywhere close to uh, optimizing. Right. But it's it is useful to know that. Uh, you would maximize profits by setting marginal sure. cost equal to marginal revenue. That's a good thing to know. The, uh, the efficient market hypothesis was uh, es- essential, as was modern portfolio theory, in teaching us how financial markets should operate. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have the efficient market hypothesis or the life cycle hypothesis, which is the economic model of uh, saving behavior, if I didn't have those things, I wouldn't have had a theory to uh, criticize. Uh, Which was helpful. A foil can be used. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Kahneman Tversky's prospect theory wouldn't have been possible without expected utility theory, which came yeah. first. And so there we have the contrast most starkly, since expected utility theory, von Neumann and Morgenstern proved that if you want to make smart decisions under uncertainty, you must follow this. Um, And it wasn't obvious that uh, being linear in probabilities was a required act of rationality. But, you know, von Neumann showed that it no, was. Your friend and colleague, Rob Schiller, starts out doing rational expectations work, but eventually problems with that lead him yeah, no, an that's, alternative route to be. That's right. I mean, Bob's uh, famous paper um, called uh, uh, Do, what is it? Do uh, Dividends Fluctuate Too Much or something like that um, started out with a simple statistical principle, mm-hmm. which is that a forecast can't be more variable than the thing you're forecasting. So, um, and the stock market right. um, violates that. was, yeah, exactly. So is it the case that throughout this period, including the period of the sort of dominance, the post-World War II ascendancy of... Um, a more formal approach in the post-1970s, new micro and all of this, there were always people misbehaving. So, I mean, it was, were Herbert Simon and Tom Schelling misbehaving economists of all lettre in this sense? Yeah, well, there were clearly, uh, well, Simon was explicitly trying to do behavioral economics, but um, he didn't have Kahneman and Tversky. And so he had the terms bounded rationality, mm-hmm. which is obviously correct. Um, and uh, he coined the term satisficing, right. which means kind of doing uh, Most the best people you settle can. for good enough rather than exactly. achieving trying exactly. to achieve Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, when I started working on this, I read Simon. And I didn't find it helpful. Mm. And the reason was, I mean, those things were obviously true, but he couldn't tell me how a satisficer differed from an optimizer. And so the big leap, the, the, the light bulb that went off for me reading uh, Amos and Danny's work 
the early judgment work was the idea of systematic bias. Right. And it was that idea that made behavioral economics possible. Which we should say is, is the idea that error is not random. Right. All right. So you can always have an error term in your equation or something. But if the error is itself predictable and has a basis, then yeah. then, then we're in business. So and Schelling, uh, yeah, Schelling was certainly a, a behavioral economist and was an early supporter of the field. Um, and in fact, I was supposed to. Del- there's a, now a Tom Schelling lecture that I was supposed to deliver. A couple months ago, and then Tom fell or something, yeah. and we had to postpone it till the fall. But the title of the lecture I had given them was uh, "Behavioral Economics: um, How It All Came from Schelling." Okay. And um, certainly, it, I mean, one of Schelling's ideas, sort of the, the idea that the uh, Nobel Prize Committee picked out, was the idea of focal points. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a very psychological idea. And a very sociological idea. So Schelling collaborated with Irving Goffman for a while in the 50s. And among other things, out of this came an introduction to the idea of framing uh, 20 years before framing became the concept that became in behavioral economics. And so Goffman does this frame analysis, and Goffman and Schelling do um, work um, trying to uh, figure out uh, essentially this concept. It doesn't take off initially and produce that. So one of the interesting things is when the ideas take off, I mean, the sociologist Robert Merton used to talk about, there's pre-discovery, that for any great right. discovery, some right. 10 people had discovered it before, and it didn't take off. Yeah, no, yeah. Schelling had a, a brilliant framing example where he talked about, uh, let, let's suppose that we make charitable deductions mm-hmm. Uh, a charitable contributions uh, tax deductible. Uh, well, that means we're subsidizing the contributions of rich people mm-hmm. uh, and not of poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you frame it, if you, uh, you know, let's have a public opinion poll. Should uh, we subsidize the donations of rich people by 40%? Uh, and not at all for poor people, no one would say yes to that. Should we eliminate the charitable deduction? Oh, well, we can't do that. Ask any university president. Uh, (laughs) Right. In fact, I've written some New York Times columns on this that I've gotten stern looks from. Well, I'm getting out of that business. So (laughs) We just got our biggest gift ever and just announced it, and so I'm quitting while I'm ahead on the philanthropy front. But let me stick to that. So there, there are... I'm so puzzled over takeoff for a moment and the individual idea. So there, and there are other examples. Reference dependence is another sort of major idea. We have a work where there's the idea of reference groups, and already from Samuel Stouffer, Robert Merton, there are a series of, of works. Um, the field of behavioral economics as a whole takes off, which is part of why individual ideas within it get more attention, mm-hmm. because they're not isolated ideas anymore. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that. And um, there's a, uh, a story, it can't quite be called a, a heroic individual illusion because you're very self-deprecating about it in the book. But the story of this happened, that happened. There's also a story, though, of, say, the Russell Sage Foundation, which takes an interest in this from the 80s, somewhere in the 80s forward, 
and is promoting and has a kind of summer camp and, and gives fellowships to various people. Does this sort of institutional support play a significant role alongside the intellectual creativity? Yeah, I, I think so. Look, I, I would describe the takeoff path of behavioral economics as resembling that of an albatross. <laughs> I don't know whether you've ever seen an albatross takeoff, but it has to run for about 200 yards and then find a cliff to jump off <laughs> and, and hope for the best. Um, so that, that was much like uh, the way our field started. But, uh, yeah, we were lucky. There was a guy called Eric Warner who became president of the Russell Sage Foundation. Uh, Highly improbably, having been an editor at Harvard University. Yeah, Press it, well, trained as a psychologist and, yeah, worked at Harvard University Press. Um, and uh, he got the idea that combining psychology and economics might be a good idea and um, gave me a grant to go spend a year with Kahneman, uh, 84, 85, and then gave us some money um, and said, uh, not a lot of money. By grant-making standards, a pittance. Um, And he said, uh, just do whatever you want with it. And we could have thrown a party, um, pretty good party for that amount of money. But and <coughs> I think it was Danny Kahneman's idea to start these summer camps. Um, so this was uh, a two-week session for graduate students. Um, to learn about behavioral economics. The first one, Kahneman and Colin Kammerer and I taught. Um, the, it's still going on. There's one in the, starting in a couple weeks. Um, David Labson and Matthew Rabin have been doing it for the last decade or so. Um, and one of the things I... I'm happiest about is, as I say, David Labson has been the co-organizer for uh, a long time. He was a, he was a camper at the first one. Ah, okay. Nice. And uh, Matthew Rabin was, uh, we called him a counselor in training uh, <laughs> because he was, uh, he had just taken a job at Berkeley and was, uh, so yeah, we've handed it off. Okay. I, I described the, my main contribution to the field as corrupting youth. And uh, there, there are many youth in the, in the room I've corrupted, so. Um. We'll keep doing it. This is good. So this may be part of the answer to the question I want to ask. So you recount more than a little resistance from uh, the economics discipline on this 40-year path. And I'm curious whether you think that is just aversion to new ideas and other forms of cognitive bias, or you think that there is something with a stronger incentive behind that resistance? Well, you know, we, we know one of, the, one of the biases that's hardest to overcome is what we economists call the sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm. And Would you give a chapter to here? Um, you know, I tell the story, uh, at least I think I tell the story, um, 
that I was at a conference once, and um, there was an economist there, uh, and he, after my talk, I think this was at some NBER conference, and he he said, well, you know, I, what I specialize in is uh, optimization theory. Uh, if you're right, what am I supposed to do? We've just moved all of our operations researchers to the math department. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. He was a macroeconomist. So, um, so you know, look, we're, we all get invested in, yeah. in our edifices. And uh, so I think some of it was that. Um, but I think a bigger reason especially uh, at places like the University of Chicago, was, uh, well, I would say a misplaced fear, although maybe uh, others would disagree, that this was basically a communist plot. And uh, the logic goes, um, you know, neoclassical economics um, is... Laissez-faire. Sure. It won the Cold War, and then people like you came along wanting to surrender. Exactly. So um, the the idea was if you conceded that individuals sometimes make mistakes, then it will necessarily follow that you want to eliminate markets and replace it with a planned economy. Now, this is, of course, a ridiculous non sequitur. and, but this was particularly – so somebody who certainly thought this way was Merton Miller, hmm. uh, who was a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago. And I took this out of the book because one is not supposed to write ev- uh, bad things about the dead, but I think you can say them. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait. We're uh, – anyway um, – uh, M- Merton Miller, um, we were colleagues, I, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years that, uh, before he died. And he literally would not look at me. We would walk in the hall and he would avert his glance. And... Uh, now, what what was that he so was mad? obviously a sort of rational homo economics thing to do. <laughs> you mean I'm that bad looking? You know, but um, so he he was worried. Uh, so he was a financial economist, and he was worried that if we were right, then people would want to regulate f- financial markets. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible idea. Yeah, we, we, clearly that's out out of bounds. Yeah. So you know, I think that there's uh, there's a big space between uh, the wild wide west and uh, a planned economy, and um, you know, uh, we nudgers are trying to nudge very very gently. Uh, we don't want to eliminate uh, security markets. But uh, we do think maybe more disclosure would be Transparency good. of information might yeah. be good. So, I mean, another line of behavioral economics, 
actually focused on the issues of asymmetries of information and imperfect information and the way that affected markets. So another strand, I mean, empirically. With well, yeah, well, although, you know, George, you, yeah, although, um, you, you know, Lemon's paper is not a behavioral economics paper. It's true. Uh, and, and that whole literature started out just as uh, straight economics. Yeah. And uh, now it's true that George moved and became a behavioral economist and uh, is now personal advisor to the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, which is a good yes, thing. Yes, very personal. Yes. But, yeah. These are you distinguished the XLSE people, so this is uh, a George is married to Janet Yellen, so. Yeah. So let me ask one last question about a former colleague, although it's conceivable he had retired by the time he got to Chicago, but he's still around, Ron Coase. And... We spoke of theory of the firm earlier, and you commented on the the very formal propositions theory of the firm and the way they offer a normative account that doesn't do descriptive. In many ways, Ron Coase began his career by going out to actual businesses and seeing what they did and trying to figure out things that led to transaction cost theory and other kinds of, of principles that were not behavioral economics, but they were grounded in trying to see the actual behavior of actual managers. And, uh, um, and so is this another strand that is, you know, avant la lettre, misbehaving economists all along, actually looking at the real world, not doing equations? Well, you know, you know Adam Smith famously visited a pin factory. Yeah. And uh, that's a tradition that uh, went out of fashion. Um, and, the, you know, there was a bit of a fight in the AER, uh, American e- Economic Review, in the late 40s. Um, led by a guy called uh, Richard Lester, who was a labor economist. And he went around and asked firms what they were doing. And he came back and reported, they, nobody said they were setting marginal cost equal to marginal revenue. <laughs> and so this newfangled uh, marginalist revolution right. is wrong. And that more or less led to Milton Friedman's famous uh, billiard player analogy that um, firms behave as if um, they're rational and uh, also gets treatment in the book, the as if. uh, Yeah, that gets a whole chapter. One of the interesting things to me, I violated my rules, and only one more question, is... I'm not sure the history of economics figures very much in the education of economists anymore. So you remarked a few moments ago on Posner reading Keynes rather than a potted summary of what an idiot Keynes was. And, but my impression is that um, even a variety of people who say, oh, I'm in favor of this Keynesian remedy, will not have read Keynes, and that the, the discipline has rather thoroughly embraced the Whiteheadian dogma about a, a field that hesitates to forget its founders is in trouble. You, you know, I'm, I'm astonished at uh, graduate school um, in economics, people r- rarely read papers more than 20 years old. Yeah. So, Which is a willful I mean, self-impoverishment. The 20th century <laughs> economics is about to be obsolete. Exactly. Let, let alone the early classical economists. And a, a lot of my younger colleagues who read the book 
came to me and said that they were astonished to read that there had been all this opposition because by the time they had gone to graduate standard, school, yeah. you know, they were reading papers by Matthew Rabin and David right. Labson, and uh, that was part of their graduate curriculum. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone, um, but. Uh, in preparing to write this book, I did go back a little bit and look. And you've been around a little while, so you know some yeah. of this history. Old, yeah. <laughs> old. All right. Let's open this up to some people who have better and more interesting <coughs> questions. When you get called on, please wait for the microphone. I'm going to call on the man right in the front row. Raise his hand first. Uh, wait for the microphone, and please tell us who you are when you ask your question. Advanced for being in the front row. Um, my name's Gervais Polden. Uh, I work at the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Um, my uh, question is that uh, behavioral economics has been really successful in public policy uh, in a lot of kind of, um, don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but often kind of micro changes, um, things where you can easily quantify and you know, justify it to a treasury paymaster, whether it's changing wording on letters or changing defaults on, mm-hmm. on pension policies or all kinds of things like that. Um, do you think there's more of an application where you're trying to change perhaps people's behavior in a more uh, wholesale fashion? And I'm thinking actually particularly in my own field in uh, things like environmental uh, challenges where the challenges are pretty huge in terms of people's mindsets about how yeah. they have to think about uh, waste and think about energy policy. And you might really be trying to change quite comprehensively about how they approach these things rather than small individual changes. Um, do you think there's... So, in a word, yes. Um, so let, let me say two things about that. Uh, one is, I mean, here's a big-picture behavioral view on climate change, which is that the Paris Accord, according to standard economic theory, is completely useless uh, because it's unenforceable. It's just a statement of intentions. And I I think that would... Now, it may turn out to be useless, uh, but I think... that would be a wrong reading uh, because uh, there's been lots of research on cooperation uh, and a a quick summary of that research is people are what we might call conditional cooperators that I'll cooperate with you if I think you're going to cooperate with me So I think the step of getting everybody at that conference to agree, at least in principle, to some goal might, history will decide, but I think it might have been a turning point. Um, The other thing I'll say is, at at the end of the book, I sort of venture on, what what I hope comes next, and the thing I'm hoping for is behavioral macro. Um, You know, we had this financial crisis, and the reacting to it uh, 
um, I see Ben Bernanke's uh, uh, picture up here. You know, Ben will uh, freely say that they were making it up as they went along. And uh, so would Mervyn, uh, who has his own book out now. Uh, So, and central bankers now are all interested in what they call forward guidance, which is just a phrase for announcing your intentions. Now, again, a sort of old-school economic view of forward guidance is that it's useless. Uh, It's cheap talk. Um, But I think... I think the consensus is that it's not useless, but also that nobody has a clue how to do it. And that's inherently a behavioral problem. So what kind of speech should Janet Yellen or Mark Carney be giving about their intentions for the next year is a fantastic behavioral problem that I hope someone studies. Okay. Um, Notice how I I used a kind of nudge to take the microphone away and prevent the follow-up questions. I'm going to prevent it for everyone else, too. The man in the white T-shirt in the back. You mentioned uh, in your discussion about financial regulation that in terms of uh, securities markets, you wouldn't abolish them, but you would have some disclosure. But isn't disclosure part of the rational action theory rather than behavioral economics? Um, well, it depends on how we do the disclosure. And in some, so if you take the efficient market hypothesis to an extreme, it says that the market knows everything instantly. Now, it's a little murky as to how that happened. And, um, if we look at the mortgage-backed securities that helped create the financial crisis, um, and obviously the definitive treatment of that is the recent movie, um, uh, The Big Short, uh, you don't really need to do anything but watch that. But um, particularly one scene. But, uh, but uh, something that I was lobbying for before I became an actor uh, was that we should be able to know all the attributes of every mortgage in that security. And that was almost impossible information to get. Now, I've worked both here with uh, Owen and my friends at Behavioral Insight Team and in the U.S. at something we call smart disclosure, which is disclosing things in machine-readable files. And I'd like to take, uh, I'd like to get rid of rating agencies by making them unnecessary. And because anyone with a PC would be able to be a rating agency. And I think we're a long way from that. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's just standard economics, but... Uh, uh, as you know, as I say, my hope is that in 30 years, behavioral economics will cease to exist. 
because all of economics will be as behavioral as it needs to be. Gentlemen in the front row over on this side in the balcony. Hi. Hi, I'm Van Dad. I'm a student here at LSE. I'm just curious if you can give us some examples of Chicago Booth MBA students misbehaving. Um, well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you a, uh, an amusing story that will also include faculty misbehaving. Um, so the, the, I don't know how you guys uh, allocate courses to students, but uh, it won't shock anyone to know that the University of Chicago uses a quasi-market system. Um, I say quasi because um, no money changes hands. Okay. But uh, students are given points each quarter, and then they bid for classes. And um, <laughs> so the, uh, the class I teach has always gone for a lot of these points. And uh, the first day of class, uh, I... <coughs> use that fact as an opportunity to talk about the winner's curse. I think I saw Eric here somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, there you are. Um, so the, um, I tell them they should t- you know, take some other class that's cheaper, uh, and I recommend some. Uh, and uh, I once got a call from a reporter who had done some research on which classes were most expensive and called me and asked me about it. And I told them that that's, I use this as a teachable moment, but um, that I was pretty sure there was a guy in the finance department who uh, used this as a good explana- uh, time to talk about the efficient market hypothesis. And um, so the reporter was good enough to figure out who I was talking about. <laughs> and called that guy, and he said, yes. In fact, he thinks it is a good (laughs) illustration of the efficient market hypothesis and shows just how valuable his class is. So um, we'll leave it at that. (laughs) All right, up in the top over on this side. Yeah. Bob Ward at the Grantham Research Institute here at LSE. Um, How successful do you think behavioral economists have been at persuading decision makers or policy makers in government to um, use your insights and your methods? And what, if they haven't been particularly successful, what more could they do? Because it seems to be a perfect practical application of your work. Well, um, you know, the... One type of application uh, of the sort that the uh, behavioral insight team here in the UK does uh, that started here. Um, when it started, there were six people. How, how many do you have now, Owen? A hundred? Yeah. So, um, and, and that's because there's demand for their services. There are now. Well, uh, uh, do, have you, what, what was your count of how many such units there are now? Uh, probably about 45. Yeah, so 
and, and I think that's just counting countries. There, there are probably 20 just within the uh, British government. Yeah, so, so that is spreading like a weed. Um, there are, but if we talk about um, macroeconomic policy, um, uh, not so much. Um, and and it, I mean that's maybe both supply and demand. Uh, we don't have so much to say about it. And, but I think um, certainly the Obama administration has embraced these ideas sort of from top to bottom, and partly it's because he knows it helped him get elected. So there are very simple principles of behavioral science one can use to uh, get people to vote. Uh, I mean, uh, an idea that was used in, in 2008 that's now been published, so it's not a big secret, is if you... The tradition was on election day to call people and say, are you planning to support our candidate? And if yes, thank you very much. We appreciate your support. The better way to do it is to say, that's great. Uh, what time are you going to go? Uh, how are you going to get there? Uh, or even, Can we do you need a ride? So, uh, but it, it, so the first part is just getting people to make a plan, uh, like, almost like to put it in their mental, mental calendar. Yeah, I'm going to vote, and I'm going to do it before I go to work. Well, those calls were about 3 or 4% more effective. And they were used in Ohio where the uh, margin of victory was about 1%. Nothing like getting somebody elected to get them to listen. The, the woman in glasses near the back, white top. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tracy. I work for a charity called the Health Foundation. I just wonder, um, we've talked a bit about how behavioral economics, behavioral insight um, affects or can be used to think about how people make individual decisions. And your book, Nudge, talks about that a lot. I wonder if there's a role for behavioral insights um, around collaboration, around relationship buildings, uh, helping people to understand how other people think and build uh, coalitions uh, to, to achieve perhaps public policy in different ways. Perhaps it links to the macro uh, economics that you're talking about. Well, I, look, I mean, I'll give a, a more general answer, which is yes to anything. <laughs> so, uh, look, there are, uh, as you undoubtedly know, we have a crime problem in Chicago. And uh, some of my colleagues have started a crime lab and are trying to work on these. And I'll tell you very quickly about uh, one intervention they've done with uh, gang members. Uh, and it, it's, it's the following. They'll take two gang members and they'll give one of them a ball. And they'll say to the other one that your job is to uh, get that ball from that guy. And then mayhem ensues. And then, uh, then they stop before anybody gets too hurt. And uh, they do a debrief. And they ask the guy without the ball, 
um, did you ever think of asking for the ball? <laughs> and uh, n- no. And then they asked the other guy, well, if he had asked you for the ball, what would you have done? Well, I would have given him the damn ball. <laughs> what would that ball? So um, it, the, the thing, the skill they're trying to teach basically is take a deep breath. And most of the violent crime in Chicago is, happens when people are aroused uh, and angry, and it happens in a few seconds. And if you could just slow them down, if we use Danny Kahneman's System 1, System 2 language, uh, you know, people shoot a gun with System 1. And if we could, I mean, that's why things like a gun lock, uh, even if the guy has a key, uh, can be helpful. So I think behavioral science can be used to help virtually any problem. Will, will it have solutions that will uh, all of a sudden stop shootings in Chicago? No. Uh, but should, be, should we be trying? Yes. I think we should be celebrating a very rare academic behavior, which you may or may not have seen on this stage before, which is that Richard just suggested that somebody else's book was useful. So go get Danny Kahneman, thinking fast and slow. Um, that's it, not a common no academic behavior. There's no one left that hasn't bought it. So, I mean, I, I think just go borrow it from somebody because they're not reading it right now. Exactly. And buy this. So, Fair enough. It, it was so painful for me, the process of Danny writing that book, that you owe me to buy mine. You've been impressed. The, um, uh, well, let's ask each of these women, since you can't tell which I'm pointing at. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lois. I'm a PhD student in behavioral economics. Um, so my question is, do you think uh, mis- well, misbehaving or behavioral bias is an innate nature of human beings arising from, our, for example, Darwin's natural selection? Or do you think it's, it's something that can be nurtured um, to, to be eliminated in the long term. For example, will we become more rational over the long term as a mankind um, in the case that if the whole world is full of economists? Yes. And will that be a good thing? <laughs> I mean, so, so, no, I'm yes to both. So, uh, look, there, there's a branch of psychology called evolutionary psychology that I'm actually not a big fan of because... In lacking a time machine, I don't know how to test these ideas. So, but there are some things that are intuitively obvious, which is as a species, we survived by eating everything we could when we could. So uh, that worked very well when you're at subsistence, and we now have 30% obesity. So... uh, We haven't had an abundant supply of cheap food for very long. So evolutionary forces are slow. We know that. Uh, Will will we get smarter? Um, Sure. Uh, But slowly. 
and um, you know, basic human instincts don't change. We we still eat, we still have sex, uh, and if we didn't, uh, the species would end. Hi, um, my name is Alex Doyle. I'm also at the Department of Energy and Climate Change and an LSC student. Um, I was reading some of your papers the other day from the 80s, so over 20 years wow. old. Wow, good job. Um, and, one, and, and there were a lot about mental accounting, which obviously you've covered in the book. But for me, it felt like it was an undercovered behavioral phenomenon, perhaps because it doesn't have a neat graph like prospect theory. Um, and I wondered if you sort of now had any reflections on it. Sort of uh, on what? I'm, I missed one word. On, me, on mental accounting. Ah, well, that's my favorite subject. Um, I think everything is mental accounting. Um, and uh, I, I do think it's been understudied. Um, we, so um, we, there are theories of reference dependence, which is part of mental accounting, where in prospect theory, where do you put the reference point? But uh, but just a part of it. And um, th- there are lots of other dimensions of mental accounting. We, I'd like to see theorists working on that problem. Um, and I, I, I think it's a, it's a domain that is underworked. So go for it. Okay. Yes. Very back next to the camera. Yeah, and then we've and got then one we've got here Eric too. over here. Okay. Hi, um, my name is Mads. I do a master's here at LC, Organizational and Social Psychology. Um, now, Gary Klein presents the naturalistic decision-making, um, which is a very positivist view of decision-making in complex environments. I was wondering how, what you thought about that in, within the kind of slightly less positivistic view of behavioral economics of decision-making and how do you think they fit or do not fit together? Yeah, you know, I think... So the, the question is about Gary Klein's work. Uh, you know, he, he and Danny Kahneman spent a lot of time trying to collaborate on some joint vision of, uh, of two different views of decision-making and ended up having a friendly failure. And I think um, his research is it's kind of analogous to anthropology that it's hard to import. So there are stories about... He's done a lot of work studying how... Uh, firefighters make decisions um, and the kind of instinctive way they know when to get the hell out of there. Uh, (coughs) But um, I I haven't seen any way of making that uh, empirically rigorous. And uh, that's the step somebody would have to take for us to be able to import it into economics. It's, it's, so it's very much the same as somebody goes and spends six months living with a, with a tribe. They're going to learn stuff, but then how, how are we going to uh, import that into economics? Um, 
there, there will be several steps in between. Okay. Over in this corner, and then we'll go to the woman in the back. Yeah, Bernard Casey from LSE. Just a quick point. Actually, it was, wasn't it anthropologists who did quite a lot of work on theories of cooperation, um, which were relevant to economists? What I wanted to actually ask about was um, we have this thing called Homo economicus, and then we have this thing called Homo sapiens, um, which is set against him. Um, I was talking to a social psychologist recently, and uh, we were talking about something called common sense. So there's also something called common sense economics, which um, might be rather pervasive. I remember years ago, somebody who was the chief economist at the OECD wrote a book where he talked about businessmen's economics, which seemed to be another case of common sense economics. Can you say what commons, how common sense economics relates to the sort of economics that Homo sapiens is uh, supposed to operate? Well, one of my ruder lines uh, is that getting a PhD in economics teaches you a lot of mathematical tools and then removes common sense. And much of behavioral economics is just admitting what anybody who's never studied economics already knows. So um, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. Hey, I'm Marianne. I'm an MSC student here at LSE. Uh, it's sort of related to the questions that have been asked before. Um, and to uh, this Freakonomics episode that you were on in terms of like moving towards being homo economicus and that we'll get smarter right. more like, slowly. Um, do you think that's good? You talked about like the being well, nicer. Self-control, yeah? <laughs> so like, yeah, there is a Freakonomics episode where I uh, try to teach somebody how to become homo economicus. And... Um, yeah, it was it was really meant as entertainment, um, and you know some of the things, some of the aspects of Homo economicus, uh, we don't really want to teach. So um, we'd like people to be more cooperative. Um, we and and I think there there's been several papers back and forth about whether. Training in economics makes people less cooperative, or is it just that only jerks study economics? <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, um, you know, are economists born or made? Is the and I'd say this is an unsettled question, um, <laughs> but uh, but there is data to suggest that. Uh, economists are less likely to cooperate in a prisoner's dilemma game. Now, the, the economists will say, well, that's because they know the dominant strategy. Um, but, you know, Amartya Sen uh, described such people as rational fools. So uh, we, we know in a, in a cooperative game uh, we all do better if we cooperate, even if it's in our selfish, uh, rational self-interest, not to cooperate. 
So, uh, I mean, this does go back to like things like climate change, and um, it, it it influences how one would um, try to uh, uh, affect changes. And look, it, there are big issues that I think social scientists and including behavioral economics, should be studying. Uh, one huge one is corruption. And there are s- some societies where corruption is a way of life, that you can't really get anything done without bribing people. Um, how does that happen? And can we change it? I don't know the answer to either of those things, but I'd like to know. And somebody young like you should study it. And Amartya Sen, who is older than either of us, will be here on Friday. And so you can follow Excellent. up the Rational Fool's question there. Gentleman, the blue jacket over here. And then we'll come back. Hi. I was wondering, can behavioral economics help me in deciding how I should vote in the EU referendum? <laughs> <laughs> Or will it just explain it after the event? <laughs> well, it's funny you should ask that. Because um, I, I was uh, sort of invited to appear on Newsnight tonight, which was going to interfere with uh, my drinking at a dinner party that some of us are going to afterwards. And um, then I got a call uh, this afternoon uh, talking about what what to talk about. And of course, they wanted to talk about Brexit. And I said, you know, I'm a behavioral economist. Um, and the question they wanted to know was something about uh, the relation between immig- immig- immigration and jobs. And, you know, I said there must be a hundred other economists in London that are better qualified to answer that question than me. Um, But I do think there are interesting behavioral aspects of it. Um, Let's go back to the framing. Um, The very words they chose probably mattered. Um, what is it, leave or remain? Those uh, Now, there are lots of synonyms for both of those words. Uh, I, I don't know whether they collected any data. Um, if anyone had asked me, I would have suggested collecting some data. Um, I, but I, I think um, that had, had I gone on that show, I probably would have uh, talked about, I think, the most apt analogy, <clears throat> which is divorce. Um, so uh, we've all known lots of people that have gone through divorces, uh, including some of us. Um, and uh, I've had a conversation with many people uh, that starts with, I'm getting a divorce, oh, and you know, oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, and but it's it's all fine. Uh, it's going to be very amicable. 
And I say, have you started to talk about money yet? <laughs> and uh, no, but it's all going to be amicable. And I'd say the percentage of those that are amicable is very small. So uh, what I would say to people who are thinking about leaving is I wouldn't vote to leave until I had uh, uh, a separation agreement. (laughs) And uh, as far as I know, there is none. Indeed. uh, It would have been good to have a uh, prenup. You see what Newsnight is missing? (laughs) And we are all. So once again, you're not going to be able to distinguish who I'm I'm pointing at, so get both of these gentlemen who are here. Uh, Hello. uh, Myself, Prem from LSE. Uh, The question is, when you came up with the title, Nudge for your book, did you ever try to apply the letter U, that is understanding mapping of the nudge for for giving the title to the book? Uh, I'm not sure I fully understood the question. So, first of all, I should say that the title uh, of the book was suggested to us by a publisher who turned it down. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we were smart enough to take the title. Um, um, And, you know, I think uh, it, it was a nice word. Uh, even if some people mispronounce it. Um, but did you do any research to find out how many people would mispronounce it? I think it was the uh, no. <laughs> uh, finding the title of a book is really hard. Uh, we didn't have a title, as, as that story indicates. We didn't have a title when we were selling the book. It was going to be a book about libertarian paternalism and you know, you can see publishers were lined up uh, <laughs> to, to publish that. Um, the same was true of this book. Um, let's see, it was it was published a year ago. The previous summer, I was here. Um, oh, it uh, in like in September, and the there was already a first draft, and I was working on the final draft and there was still no title. And um, I was desperately going around talking to all my friends at this conference that the Behavioral Insight team organized. And um, one of my friends, Craig Fox, I told him, I was very close to misbehaving, but he said, did you think about misbehaving? So that's it. Um, so, uh, I did, but again, no research. I, I knew that was the title. Okay. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Raghav. I'm doing my master's here at LSE. So uh, you were in India last year to talk about the Clean India Initiative. And I, I, was I talked about what? The, the Clean India Initiative with the government about how to clean the villages and how to go about stopping something like open defecation. And I was uh, trying to read about it online, but I couldn't find the insights that you had discussed in closed rooms there. So if you could give me an insight on what was discussed and what could be done to overcome that. So uh, there was one word I missed in that, and it was a key word. Uh, so I'm not exactly no. sure the what... What initiative? Was that the word? Initiative for the Clean India 
Clean India Initiative in India? Ah, 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 yeah, okay. Yes. Um, uh, well, this is the problem of open defecation. Um, and, I mean, there's a, I, I may have used this line last year. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine here who has the best line on that topic, which is to say, the TED Talk, on that problem is there's no TED Talk. And I was going to use that line until I found out there was a TED Talk. <laughs> um, but, Ever the empiricist. <laughs> but, um, but there shouldn't be. Uh, so, I mean, this is, a, this is a good example of a really hard problem. Um, and, you know, we Westerners naturally think that if you just build toilets, people will use them. Um, and uh, that turns out to be false, especially for men. Um, men are always the problem. Um, and look, the, the fact that uh, they probably don't smell very good uh, may have something to do with it. Uh, you know, think of the bad portable toilets uh, you've used at uh, concerts and things. Uh, but uh, that's a problem that no one's cracked, as far as I know. Um, and it, 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 will, it will take a combination of design and behavioral science, and <coughs> no one's come up with it yet. Okay, alas, we're near the end of the time. So one last question, as promised here, the woman in the second row of the balcony. Hi, uh, my name is Nicole Vashuba. I study, I do a PhD in um, political decision-making. And you mentioned the Obama government has picked up on your ideas. So I'm wondering, how did you nudge them to use the nudge? Um, we showed some people in the Obama campaign data. It's as simple as that. Um, you know, uh, the, the campaign was located in Chicago. So. <laughs> and uh, actually, the, in, the, in the 12 campaign... The uh, finance chairman is now uh, the ambassador to uh, Britain. In fact, I had a drink with him last night. I, uh, he has a very nice house. <laughs> <laughs> His backyard is big enough that he's going to have a cricket match on the 4th of July. So uh, I recommend becoming the American ambassador to the UK. It looks like a good gig. Okay, so advice you can act on. Yeah, there you, you heard it here. Please join me in thanking Richard Taylor. <laughs>